welcome to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. And I'm excited to share with you somebody I have been stalking. No, that's not the proper term. Following and enjoying the work of Dr. Angel Jones, PhD, educator, street scholar, incredible person. I stumbled across your page on uh, Instagram and I have been a huge fan ever since. So I'm going to read her bio because you need to know her. If you don't know, now you know. All right. So... <laughs> And I also like 90s hip hop, if you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Angel Jones is an educator, an activist, and a critical race scholar. And we need to talk about that. Who uses creative methods such as hip hop, DJ, <laughs> and poetry to center the voices and experiences of the Black community. Her research explores the impact of racism on mental health with a focus on microaggressions and the racial battle fatigue. Dr. Jones is also a public scholar who uses social media as an educational tool to increase access to academic scholarship. Dr. Jones has been interviewed by multiple media outlets, including Forbes, Yes Ma'am, <laughs> USA Today, and Insider for her expertise on, race, expertise on racism in the United States, which we are here in Canada. It transcends that border, that imaginary line that divides our country, does not um, discriminate against who's racist and who's not. We're equally as racist here in Canada. Deal with it. Uh, Dr. Jones is also a proud first-generation college student who received her PhD in education from George Washington University with a focus on inequality in higher education. She also has a master's in education and EDS in school counseling from Georgia State University, as well as a BA in political science from Syracuse University. And she is also a native of Brooklyn and a proud Afro-Latina. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jones. We are honored to have you here. Thank you for being a part of the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast, my friend. Thank you for being a hype person. That made me feel super important. <laughs> you are super important. I always love to see. Uh, I always love to see black girl magic in action. Right. I know people have feelings around that, but I still feel like we're magical in a way that we transcend. I always love to say, in spite of white supremacy. That part. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I want to talk to you about how you came to the social media space, how you continue to educate people and not really just lose the drive and the energy, because this is hard work that you're doing on the regular. And I know you get a lot of hate for it. I do. Definitely. Um, <laughs> I want to know how you manage that. Like, how are you how are you keeping it together? How are you protecting your peace? Some days better than other. Um, sure. I would say that I came to this work like it was accidental, but it's definitely my purpose. Um, when I finished my PhD in the summer of 2020, I couldn't find a job. Um, it, was a, it was at the height of the pandemic. I applied to, I think, 50 different positions. I got one interview and no job. Um, so after I got out of my feelings, <laughs> I was like, all right, like, I still have things I want to do. Like, I still want to educate folks. I still think that this research on the Black community is really important. How can I get it out there? Um, and at the time, most of the scholars I knew were on Twitter and I didn't have a Twitter account. So I was like, all right, let me do that. And my first tweet went viral. Um, it got a half a million views and shares across all platforms. Um, and it was about the mental health of students of color at predominantly white institutions. So I was like, oh, like folks care about this work. Um, and two years later, I am still doing it. 
Um, I'm up to 60,000 followers right now. I've had reels that have reached up to 8 million views. And all of the work that I do on social media is focused on social justice, mainly the, the, the black community, because I'm unapologetic about the fact that I love them. Um, but that I, I do also use my platform to fight for other social justice issues. Um, but yeah, it's been something that I wake up every day and choose to do. Um, there are definitely some days that are harder than others because, um, surprise, surprise, people don't want me to talk about racism in the United States or racism in general. So um, I deal with a lot of hate mail, uh, death threats, um, vile language. I've been called the N-word at least a thousand times, and that is yeah. not an exaggeration at this point. Um, but I believe the community is worth it. So I get up every day and choose to do it because the community is dope. It is dope. And you know what I always say? As a person who is not an African-American, um, I prefer to re refer to myself as black. And when I speak about people, I use the term black because I think for my in my arrogant opinion, just so I'm clear, it really is inclusive of our Afro-Latinas. It's inclusive of the Caribbean folks, which is where my heritage is from. It is um, it is inclusive of any anybody who's rocking the skin color, I find. I've had lots of conversations because I do a lot of diversity, equity. I don't even use the word inclusion anymore because inclusion really um, says to me that there's still people who are gatekeeping. There's still people mm -hmm. at the door saying, you're included, you're not included, you're included, you're not included. And so I want to have belonging. I'm creating a space where everybody belongs and let me tell me what you need for me to provide for you so you have a sense of belonging in the space. And I feel that's the work that I'm most interested in. And I found you because that aligns. And I, I'm with you. The black community is dope. Shout out to the black community who has survived the transatlantic sl slave trade, human trafficking, brutal torture, the destruction of anything that we've created, the uh, appropriation of anything that we've created and making sure that we don't get paid for the things that were created and then if we complain about it to make sure you make us look like complainers when we say to like wait a minute that's not new that's been going on mm -hmm. here there and everywhere forever and so for that sheer reason alone i feel that that's why we stand on these platforms we stand mm -hmm. on the shoulders of everybody who's ever come before us and the very least we can do for our ancestors is to reach back and grab the torch and pull it forward. Absolutely. As much, right? As much as we make 10 steps forward, a society, white supremacy, and people in their feelings like to push us 12 steps back. And we have not relented. Like we have created a whole new culture. Imagine to yourself, if you will, if you're not a person who is black or you don't relate to this story in any way, that you were torn from your motherland, put in a ship, dragged all over the world, expected to, to, be, to be owned by other folks, not having a voice, getting freedom, and I'm going to put freedom in quotations because we're still working for that, and creating a whole new culture because we were from different ethnic groups, right? Mm -hmm. Just because we're black and just because we're from a particular part of the continent or country doesn't mean we're the same in any stretch of the imagination, but we had to come together. We could have been from warring ethnic groups. We could have mm -hmm. been, there's lots going on there. I don't know, there's lots of feelings around woman king, but it gave me a like insight into the fact that we are very different. There are different ethnic groups going on. There's different struggles going on. And we had to forego all of that and come together and create a brand new culture. And we did. We created a brand new culture, whether you're from the Caribbean or whether you're from um, Latin speaking countries or whether you're um, from the Americas, we had to create a whole new culture. Mm -hmm. We had to leave everything behind and create a whole new culture that became so popular that the dominant culture 
wants to own it for themselves. And I mean, if that doesn't make us magical, <laughs> I don't know what does. Think, if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. That's we real. Set, we set the culture. We set the trends. We, we put the seasoning in the food. We bring the flavor to humanity. <laughs> Can you imagine what the world would be like if we did not exist? Dull. Right? And this group of people would have killed itself long ago because they like to vote against their own best interests all the time. That has been made clear, especially over these last eight years. But that's a different podcast episode. But right. Yeah. And, <laughs> that is. Um, we'll, yeah. We'll, I'll have to have you back and we'll have that whole conversation. But if blackness did not exist, blackness, capital B. So let's be clear about that when we talk about blackness. Blackness, capital B, because it is indeed a culture. Mm-hmm. Whiteness is not a culture. And, and we know why, because you can break down where you're from in the world. However, we don't always have that luxury. So blackness is a culture in and of itself. We created something, a music, a food, a style, a dress, a way of speaking. That's a culture. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, we did all that from absolutely nothing. From being told we were three-fifths of a person. From being told because of our skin color, which only comes to be this shade due to believe it or not, ultraviolet rays and where you are on the country, we don't even acknowledge that Africans were in North America before the Europeans. <sighs> History books, folks, the ones that tell the truth. Right. And there aren't an, enough of those, which is why the government and politicians, well, crooked politicians are trying to ban history books because they don't want folks to know the truth because it makes them them look bad. It makes their ancestors look bad. But you know what? Your your ancestors were trash. And that and that is the truth. And some, some of y'all are presently trash. So we need to talk about that, too. So you cannot be trash no more. Yeah, you can choose to transcend. And when we yes. talk about you can't choose to transcend. And we can't ignore the past in, in order to have that happen. We have to know truly who we are, how we participated to make a change. And it, it, it's incredible to me that they are so afraid of the truth that they're willing to use their privilege within politics and legislature to continue to oppress certain groups. Because who cares if it makes your ancestors look bad? They're dead. It's over, right? Like they're not gonna, you know what I mean? How can you change the narrative and how can you be the positive change in your family? You know, like, I don't know if you follow Robert E. Lee, but he's, he's on Twitter and he's the direct descendant of the Robert E. Lee. And he has said openly on his Twitter feed, I wanna be the Robert E. Lee that does the right thing. Oh, okay, let's do it then, yeah. Right? Like he speaks out against racial injustice when he, his ancestor, he's named after the dude. <laughs> the like OG racist. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, it is possible. I just think it's fascinating that white folks like to deny white privilege while using their white privilege to discredit it. Like, like, y'all, like y'all are able to ban stuff on white privilege because of your white, white privilege. privilege. Like, are y'all not like, it, it's just like racist inception. Like y'all don't even see yourselves at the, it's a lot. It's a, but change is possible. Like, like we do this work because we believe change is possible. Right. And I have to do this. Part of that is through, is, is through education and critical self, self, self-reflection. Like you have to hold, to hold yourself accountable, but you can't do that if you're not willing to grapple with the truth. It's, and it's amazing to me. Uh, we never learn from history as a people. I find, um, we just are, we just seemed 
we seem willing to want to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And the thing that all I find incredibly entertaining is the people who want to um, cancel or prohibit the teaching of critical race theory can't even define what that is. So when you ask them to define it, they can't even tell you what it is. Well, I'm not going to get into that here at this time, you know, because blah, blah, blah. When you say things like that, it's because you don't know. You don't know. And so it's amazing that we just want to shut down things that we don't know or don't understand. And it's amazing, too, with your white privilege, you get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because racism is scary to them. But I'm like, but y'all created it. And y'all could help dismantle it. So then you wouldn't have to be scared of this. And then you could be that person. Instead of being the person that is racist, you could be the person that changed the game. Isn't that far more powerful? You could be the good Robert E. Lee. Like, you could do it. Yeah. And he said as much. I'm going to be the opposite of this person. And he talks about how his his, um, ancestors said that the Confederate flag should be never seen again. And he wasn't even buried with it. His cousin, he's not he's not even buried with it. He said, Robert E. Lee, the one that people like to say, the, the Civil War was not about uh, about slavery. It was about um, uh, states' rights. States' rights to own slaves, people. Come on now. Come on. I'm a Canadian. I didn't even have to study this. Okay, I'm a Canadian. This is a part of our bar history. We don't learn this shit. So I'm going to tell you as a Canadian. Seems pretty clear to me. It is. It seems is. pretty clear. It doesn't seem that hard. I've read some books. I've watched some videos. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But the cognitive dissidence, the mental gymnastics that people are willing to make in order to (laughs) disclaim their whole existence, we cannot get past this until white folks have done their own work around their trauma around race. The same way we've been generationally traumatized by human trafficking and enslavement, you can't say that you have been unaffected as race. You would equally have the same amount of trauma in a different way, of course. And you have to confront that before you step into this space. So I tell me about it. Angela. I'm talking to you. Tell me about Angela. Tell me about Dr. Angela. Tell me how, how you got started in this work. Like you said, you couldn't find a job after PhD. How did you transcend that? Because you can't just go on Twitter. You went on Twitter and had a viral post. Like, how do you keep the energy going to do this work? And what is your passion behind this Um. I would say, I mean, I've been an educator for as long as I can remember. So I think it's been a little over 15 years now. Um, and I've worked, I, I was a middle school counselor, high school counselor. And then as a professor, I've done undergrad, masters, and doc students. Um, so I've always loved teaching. Um, but I love what social media has helped me to do because it's allowed me to realize I don't have to be in the classroom to educate. Right. And I love the classroom and I can't see myself ever not being in the classroom in some facet, but I educate millions. Even that sounds bananas. I educate millions of people, but like I do across, across the world. Um, and it's about things that I'm already passionate about. Right. So my, my, my research during my doc program looks at racial microaggressions and look at, look at racial battle fatigue, right. It looks at how racism is negatively impacting the mental health of the black, the the black community. Um, so I've just always been passionate about mental health. Um, so for, for me to talk about that stuff, like it is natural for me to to do it on social media. wasn't very natural to me because I just wasn't a social media person. Um, but when I saw how it affect, how effective it was, um, 
I think for me, it became easy because I legit just have conversations with people, right? Like, like I, I'm not on social media, tr- like trying to sound academic or trying to be profound. And like, I hate the bouginess and the elitism of the academy, right? Like I am not, I'm an academic because I do the damn thing, but like, I don't want to be that person. So I feel like that's made it easier for me, but then also easier for folks to understand it and relate to it because I'm literally having a conversation with people. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I just love it. Like I love it. It's hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to, you know, say it's all roses and rainbows. Um, but I wake up as myself. I do this work as myself for the people I love, which happens to be the black community. And I love that you are on this platform because it makes it so much more accessible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can just, anybody who's got access to the internet and can access these platforms can literally have a university quality lecture and learn from somebody who's deeply entrenched in the work. And I think that's amazing. I know it's hard to get on the social media space, but I really think social media may have a greater influence on our education than the educational system itself. Um, so I feel like if I were going to university now, I went to university in the 90s, if I were going to university now, I would have so I, I would have been a much better student because I would have been able to see a more um, equitable division of labor. I would have been able to connect with scholars that look like you. I went to mm-hmm. university, everybody was white. Um, all the educators was white. I don't remember having a, an ed, I don't remember having a professor of color at all. And my alma mater just really recently put out in the newspaper, I think last year, that they're finally going to hire professors of color. And one of my neighbors who's in law school put together the search to bring black professors to campus. And the thing that's amazing to me is I live in Essex County. This is the end of the Underground Railroad. I live right across from Detroit. Um, less than a kilometer from my house is a graveyard of former enslaved Africans. Like this is a very rich city around the Underground Railroad, around there's like settlements of uh, black folks um, who who were emancipated or who ran away. Um, there's settlements here in Essex County that are the first in the world. There are generations of black folks in Essex County, yet the university has never had, thought to have a black studies program. The university has never thought to have black professors. It's amazing to me. I think there's maybe a couple at the law school, but not when I was coming up, absolutely not. And I, so academia, academia is hugely steeped in white supremacy. Absolutely. And they act like it's not. And I'm just like, just just look around. Right. Like, like, like having a handful of black professors doesn't make y'all woke. It doesn't like mean that y'all are still not racist and sexist and homophobic and trans. Like all of these things still exist and they'll continue to exist if you deny their existence. And I, I feel like they just like, oh, if we, we don't talk about it. It'll, it'll just go away. That's not this is not how this works. Yeah, And bringing a voice to that. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you deal with your own mental well-being because you are getting a lot of hate pushed your way. I've seen the comments on your social media. I've seen you talk about it. How do you fortify yourself with that? How does that not send you into a spiral? Like when I look at all that pushback, how do, how do you continue to hold your head up? Um, therapy, medication. Um, so I am. 
Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm going to plug in my laptop. Um, but yeah, I think so. I mean, I already struggle with with my mental health. Um, I've had depression for forever. So I've, I've always been been in therapy. I take meds every day for my depression. Um, I go to therapy a lot more often when I am in the throw. So like, normally I see my therapist every every other week. But there might be times I need to see her twice in one week, right, because of what's going on. Um, but I always say, like, I do this work for the community, but I'm able to do it because of the community. Um, so, like, my community is amazing. Like, folks really hold me down. And these are people that I know in real life, but also on social media, right? Like, just the love and support that I get. But I've also learned to take breaks. Um, so that there are times where maybe I'll take a break for a day or a weekend or a whole week, right? It's because I, I, I am human. I do get scared of the of these death threats. I do I do cry. I do spiral sometimes. Um, but like, I would say for every, kind of what you were saying, like in terms of the followers versus people who leave or come back, like for every time I get called the N-word, I'll get 100 DDMs about how inspirational I am, right? Or how folks are impacted. There was a white woman last month that DMs me. She was like, Dr. Jones, I'm a better mom because of you. Right. And like, I'm, I'm not a mom, like I don't do parent work, but she was like, no, I'm a better mom because of you and the work that you do and what I've learned from you. And I was like, yes, like they are why I wake up every day. And do well. She's a white woman, so I don't do it for white people. But the ed- educating people, right, is why I do this work. So they remind me, like, no, like you're doing what you're supposed to do. And honestly, like the hate I get is just confirmation, right? So like y'all keep saying racism don't exist, but I got receipts of receipts of y'all being racist as hell. So so yeah, it, it's hard, but like I've learned to take care of myself, to take breaks. I love a good massage or spa day, like literally whatever I need to do. Um, and But as an educator and being in the classroom, like my students, like when I'm in that classroom, I don't care what's happening outside of those four walls. Like I just get goosebumps because right? I love my babies. Well, they're 30s and 40s. But like, but like I love them and I get refreshed and re-energized um, because of the work that I do. Um, so it's hard, but I can't imagine not doing it. So how do you approach teaching critical race theory, not only online, but in the classroom for people who are interested. I had a conversation with another professor who debunked the idea that we are actually teaching critical race theory at the primary school level, that this isn't like, you can't go in and find a curriculum where that is actually a thing. So, you know, how do you teach that and how do you address the people who are fearful of it or want to shut it down? Um, I want to be like, read a book. Um, because folks can't define it it's like to me like the most basic definition right is that critical critical race theory is a framework we use that acknowledges the roles that race and racism play in the systems across our country right so i specifically look at what it looks like within the educational system but it could be the, the healthcare system it could be the injustice system right like it could be all these different systems that show the role that racism is playing in terms of systemic racism right like it's not just like oh this one person is racist right but what does it look like for us to have our system right like seats in in these things um and we do not teach it in k-12 we do not never have and and there's no reason to like we don't teach any theory to seven-year-olds like for like for, for forget critical race like any theory like we're not teaching quantum theory to eight-year-olds right like we're just not doing that and it is a framework that we use for research so it is so it started in in legal studies so it's so it's really only taught now in law schools 
and and PhD programs. There are some master's level, um, and there might be an occasional like undergrad class on like if they're talking about research and things like that. But I didn't learn about critical race theory until my doc program because there's no need to. Um, talk about that. So Dr. Gloria Lassen Billings was like the goat of all things. So she's one of the original scholars that brought CRT to education. And after the hoopla last year um, with all the haters in CRT, she, she did a video and she was like, there's no reason for folks to know about CRT outside of the academy, right? Like outside of researchers, because y'all ain't got no business using it. Cause like you don't need to use it. But I think folks have like made CRT like this, the, the big bad wolf um, and, it, and it's become this um, um, umbrella term to kind of encompass all things race-based. So I feel like a lot of these right-wing politicians have been able to ban history and talks about race by calling it CRT. So they're, they're, they're creating these anti-CRT bans, but if you look at the fine print within these bills, it's really talking about not talking about race in schools it's not really about crt because you can't ban something that we're not doing in the first place like y'all like y'all stupid um but 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 they're they're actually not trying to ban crt they're trying to ban all things race-based they're just trying to ban a critical look at history let's be honest right yeah that's what's happening and you have to ask yourself as an individual as an educator as a person walking the planet who does that benefit if we don't actually talk about the truth of our history, right? It's been whitewashed and buried. We've been lied to. I remember in my second year of university, I did a political science degree with an under, I did a minor in uh, history, Canadian history, and a minor in um, public administration. I didn't know what I was doing when I was like, I'm just going to take it all. This is a joke. That's a joke. I did the same thing. Right? I was confused at the time. You know, I was like 19. I don't know what I'm doing. And so, you know, I remember being in a, in a history class and my professor coming in and saying, okay, there seems to be this new thing. Okay, we're talking 90s. I was in university from 90 to 94. So we were in class, this professor comes in, literally with the patches on his sleeves, you know, a white dude sits, gets up at the front of the room. We had these things called overheads back in the day. Mm -hmm. Put an overhead on the screen and says, okay, all these other professors, we have a bunch of new women professors and we're talking about women's history and all this other stuff. And I'm not going to be teaching that kind of history. I'm going to be teaching the real history here. And I, yeah, the 1990, and even in 1990, when this was not a hot topic or hotly contested or debated, uh, that we were re-looking at history, revisiting history, if you will, I just packed up all my stuff in the middle of class because I thought I am the one paying tuition. And as far as I am concerned, I am paying your salary to teach me something that I can apply to outside life. And as far as I'm concerned with history, learning about the battle of this and the battle of that for the battle of this for the battle of that, I need the history to help me apply to the real world today. What systems have been in place in history? Who has been excluded from history? Whose stories are we not hearing? How is the narrative being told? That's what I actually wanted to learn back in 1990. So I very loudly packed up all my shit because I'm extra like that. My name is Diane with two N's because I am extra. Okay, mom knew it when she saw my face. I made a big thing packed and he said, where are you going? I go, I don't pay for this. That's what I said at 19. 
into my my black identity. I feel like most of us do. And I became super radical. Like I, I, I was the, 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 the in, in like the, the, the black student union. I used to I used to used to write for the, the black paper, but as a Latina I was also in the Latino group and, and wrote for the Latino magazine. And I, I chopped off all my hair and went natural. Like I did all the things. I remember when I came back the first time my mom was like I know right <laughs> Angela Davis, like what's happening? Sure, why not? Like, he was like not ready for my black revolution <laughs> and identity development, but sorry, not sorry. I appreciate university for that. That I got to see other black students who were doing these things that were radically looking at changing the curriculum from this tired, dusty conversation that we have been having over and over again that doesn't actually lay the framework to teach us why systems are the way they are. And I'm hoping that that is changing in the educational system. Have you been noticing that as a, as a person, as an educator? Have those things changed at all? Yes, but not enough. Um, and I feel like the academy wants us to be grateful for the little crumbs that they like sprinkle on us. And I'm like, nah, like we need to like push back against all of that. So I'm really excited. So I'm teaching a class actually starts today on my book, Street Scholar, and I'm challenging the academy. Right? I'm talking about like, what does it look like for us to reimagine how we do this work? Because a lot of academics claim to do research for the community, but then don't make it accessible to the community, which is hella dumb, um, right? So like we, we can't do all this dope research and then only sh share it at, at academic conferences, right? Like we can't just educate folks like that that can afford $100,000 to, you know, to, to go to university for, for four years. So the whole book I'm talking about, how I've been able to use social media specifically as a form of public scholarship. And I'm teaching a whole class this semester on it, right? So to teach my students how to do it, which is the class that you'll be coming and speaking at um, in, in a couple of months, right? So I think it's important for us to do that work. Um, so I'm pushing back. And the academy is hella uncomfortable, and I don't care. Um, like, we have to do this work. And I always say I don't call people out. I call them higher. And I'm trying to call the academy higher, right? Like, what does it look like for, act, for us to actually be about this life, right? To actually do work that can have a global impact, right? Like, Change is not going to come with a bunch of us just sitting at a co conference room table talking about, oh, I did this work. And you're like, yes, all that stuff is important, but like both and like it's important within the academy, but we also need to be able to bring it to the streets so that way folks can be educated and people like that woman can become a better mom because of what she's you know learning and listening to. Um, I don't believe in gatekeeping important information that's going to empower people, that's going to interrupt 
you know, oppression. Um, so yeah, so the academy is working on it because uh, we have scholars that are pushing back, um, but we still have a long way to go, definitely. Absolutely. Do you get, do the scholars that you have that engage with this information, are they primarily black people and other people of color? Or are, are, are white people dumping their toe into the pond, whether to steal it or to actually? Um, <laughs> I was like, when I think about public scholars, um, well, I mean, I'm also intentional about who, who I follow, right? So, so I follow black um, and other folks of color that are public scholars, but I, I do also follow some some white folks um, that that are doing really good work on eating disorders and and you know and diet culture and things like that. Um, I follow folks that, that like do disability work and things like that that aren't always people of color because I just believe in social justice issues in general. Um, I would say that white folks are the ones that like are being educated. Right. I mean, they, they are the majority in general, not the global majority, even though they think that they are um, right. Like here, he, he, here in the U.S. And I would you know how on Instagram it tells you like your analytics, but it doesn't tell you the like race of your folks. Yes. But I mean, I, I would assume just based on math that the majority of my followers are white um, because they they, they want to learn and there are just more of them in general. Um, but they're like what you were saying. There are people that steal my work all the time, like all the time um so when i first started doing work on instagram like i it was just on instagram but i didn't have like my name or anything like that but i'm intentional about screenshotting my tweets and then putting that on social media so it has my face so it has my name um which makes it harder for people to steal but but people will still crop out you know my, my name or or or, or, or will re, rewrite it completely i i was actually doing a talk about my about my book a month ago and i was sh- 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 sharing one of my tweets and I would say half of the people in the room, they were like, oh, I've seen that tweet before, but it wasn't from you. And I was like, son of a biscuit. Like, like y'all are really <laughs> just stealing. And like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Cause like there are, so like, for example, the, the pro- progressivist, like his, his page is him highlighting other people and he still has 800,000 followers. So like, you won't get less followers because you're citing your source, right? Like it's okay for you to repost work from people and actually give them credit. Like you don't get more credit for stealing it. Um, like it just doesn't, it, it, it just boggles my mind. Um, but I mean, but yeah, people steal it all the time. And I'm just like, at the end of the day, like there's part of me that of course thinks it's trash. And like, I, I do call people out. But at the end of the day, if folks are being educated which is ultimately the purpose of the post i'm grateful like they don't have to be educated by me for it to count right like i want you to be educated in general but i also want people not to be trash and steal the intellectual property of black women yeah which they've been doing for a uh, time in millennium and you we'll know, continue to do and we'll continue to do i you know i once had a, a white woman slide into my dm so we'll just call her brenda and uh she was like I, me and my people or whoever her group of people have had to stop following you because you just you're stealing other people's work you're resharing other people's work you're only allowed to reshare other people's work like this first woman policing me uh you're only allowed to reshare other people's work in a story or whatever and then so i got on yeah i know yeah once i saw her picture and went over and looked at her page i'm like yeah you need to not call me you and all your friends please because um, i was like and, and so I always go, um, this is what I always go, I go, thanks? And again, who, who are you exactly? I always do that so that they know it. Um, 
And I don't care. You can take you and your 2,000 followers and uh, fuck off. I'm good. I'm okay not to be in your group. Um, But I've always thought with my own social media platform that I'm creating a community. So whenever I share anybody's work, I always say, I'm thankful that to this creator from TikTok. I'm thankful mm-hmm. to this creator from here. They have a Patreon page. Go check out their link in bio. I have this huge platform, and if I can't share it to uplift the voices of people mm-hmm. who are doing work, then what's the point of the platform? Okay. Who? How many pictures of me do you need to see? <laughs> Warrior two, or on my head, or talking about my eyeliner. Like, who the hell cares? I'm about the most boring person you're gonna meet. So I want to, you know, share the platform. The more people doing this work, the better. And quite frankly, I just had a friend of mine who's an anti-ageist activist uh, roll into my DMs. He recently hit 100,000 followers on Instagram. And he said the vast majority of those 100,000 followers are from you. And I said, I want to elevate the people who are doing the work, which is why I have people on the podcast, which is why I share, which is why I do reactions and all that. Because I, there's only so much, so many times I can teach you how to step your foot between your hands. <laughs> like at some point, I'm like, okay, you know, something yeah. on this is plenty. Different outfits outside, <laughs> inside, in my garage, on my kids' bed. Like I love. Of those posts, I mean, but you're right. But if you think about just how we are raised, our like our ancestral culture, like we are a yes. collective people, right? Like we believe doing things in community. We believe in uplifting community. There are other cultures. I use that word loosely that are very in, in, individualistic, right? Where they're they're out for self. And I won't say one one is bad and one is good, but I believe ours it is, is what it is. Um, I believe ours is best. Right. So I'm really so. So I actually have two chapters on that in the book, right? So I have one that's called um, "It's Just a We Thing," which is a play off of "It's Just a She Thing" um, by Salt and Pepper, where I specifically highlight Black women that I think are doing dope work on social media. So of course, there's a section on you in there. Um, so like the whole chapter is about highlighting other folks, and then the next chapter I in- interview two two people that I think are doing great work with both Twitter and Instagram and like the whole thing is about them. Right. So I have two chapters in my book that is about my journey where I'm still highlighting other people because like, that's the freaking point. Right. Like, like this is not the angel Jones show, right? Like I do that's what I say all the time. It's not the giant body show. Like I do this for, for the community and I am not the only one doing it and I shouldn't be the only one doing it. Right. Like we have to be in community and uplift the community but so to me, folks that are coming at you for that, you know how they move. And y'all clearly have different MOs. And that's okay. And that's it. Because I went, like I said, I went, thank you. And, you know, feel free to unfollow and tell all your friends. <laughs> I totally And don't announce it. I always say that. Don't announce it. Love an airport, on an airport or a train station. You do not need to announce your departure. You know, pick up. You know what? I, have, I have a reel on that that I haven't posted in about a year. So, you know what? I think that's going to go. Need, I think it needs a repost. I, I think it's time to come back because I'm just like, bye, boo. Like, exactly. Why are you even telling me? Because they seriously think you're going to say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to change for you. I think that's what they believe. And I just don't like I I I, I lose hundreds. You know, on Instagram, I can tell you how many people followed you and unfollowed you. Like I lose, I lose hundreds a week. Yeah. Right. So like I, I, I gained that 
thousands of right. So I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not pressed about y'all. Like, like, and some, 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 some folks do like the whole follow for follow. Like, I'm very intentional about who I follow because I feel like my follow is a cosign to this person and this work, right? So, so like when people who follow me go to that page, if it says followed by Angel Jones PhD, they're automatically going to trust that person. And so that's why like I only follow like 750 people, right? And it's not because like, oh, I'm an elitist. and I, No. So one, because it's a cosign. And two, because I monitor what comes into my own body, right? So when I'm scrolling, I don't want to have to worry about what's coming through. And, and if someone puts something that's even slightly homophobic, transphobic, racist, when I tell you, I will unfollow you with the quickness and I will not announce my departure. I will just bounce. And then I've had people like, oh, well, why'd you unfollow me? And I'm like, let me, let me tell you why. This post, this post, this comment. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As uh, Sonia Renee Taylor says, another huge icon in the book. She's, she's also in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. I love her. Be blocked and be blessed. <laughs> And in that order. Um, yeah. So tell me in your journey on writing your book. Tell us the title. Tell us what inspired you to write this book. Um, so it's called Street Scholar, Using Public Scholarship to Educate, Advocate, and Liberate. Because um, I've always said that everything I do is for those three purposes. Like whether it's my research, my social media, my teaching, like I want to educate, advocate, and liberate. Um, so in the book, so I started the book. What year are we in now? 23? So I know. The uh, that me <laughs> up with the, it was the fall of 21. I was talking to my, my mentor, Dr. Chris Emden. And I, I was just like, so he's like my biggest fan. Thinks I can conquer the world. Um, so I went to him because I felt like I'm not dreaming big enough. Because I'm just like, I don't know what to dream. So I told him, I was like, Chris, I don't know what to dream. So tell me what to do. And then he, he was like, you need to write a book. And I've always wanted to write a book. But originally, I thought it was going to be like on, on my research and black women and mental health. And those and those books are coming. But he was, like, he was like, you need to write a book about what you're doing on social media. Like, you need to write a book about public scholarship. And I was like, really? I was like, you think folks want to, he was like, no, like you need to tell people what you're doing so other folks can do it. Um, and like, I didn't think folks would care about that stuff. But when a New York Times bestselling author tells you to do something who loves you, you shut up and, and you do it. And, and like when I started it, it only took me about three months um, because, because the book, like my, everything else I do is, is conversational. Like once I just started, like I was like, let me just have a conversation with folks. Um, and I love it. The book is rooted in, in, in hip hop because I love hip hop. So every, every chapter is, is named after a hip hop song. And every chapter starts with lyrics from a hip hop song that kind of talks about what that chapter is about. Um, which is, which is also me, like, pushing back against the academy. Like, we're going to use hip-hop, and you're going to like it. Um, or you're not going to like it and feel uncomfortable. And that's okay, too. And that's necessary, actually. It, absolutely. Because I feel like, like we grow within the discomfort, right? Um, people of color, Black people, Indigenous people, and other people of color are constantly uncomfortable in this world. Constantly. Every day of our lives, we sit in a place of discomfort in which we learn to navigate or... Um, supersede or rise above or you know run away from that is our entire existence and has been for hundreds of years so you can learn to sit in it for 20 minutes yeah and i think about that with when you were talking about we were talking about how white white women would weaponize their tears and a, a lot of the, the the banning of black history you know folks have been saying oh because it makes white kids uncomfortable or you know it hurts it their feelings and, and my thing is like black lives are more important than white feelings so I'm not saying that your feelings are not important, 
but they're not as important as black lives and us not teaching history, us continuing to repeat these things are literally killing black people. So I don't care about your feelings if you're putting them over the lives of black people. Um, Cause no one's been checking for the feelings of black kids ever forever. Um, so miss me with all of that. Um, so yeah, so my, my, my book is, is calling the Academy higher um, and just really challenging them to kind of rethink how they do things. And like, even like the, the way I write, the, like the way, the way I talk to you is how I talk to my, 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 my mama, my best friend, my students, when I'm presenting, like I am my unapologetic, authentic self always. Um, so like in the, in the talks I've done so far about my book, there's always at least one person in the audience that's just like, you let me see that I can, like, I, I can write as me. Cause like when, when you're in the Academy that they expect you to, you know, to, to, to write a certain way and use all these big words and be, be an elitist. Um, and I think so they're, they're just like, no, like you're showing me that I don't have to be that person. I'm like, no, be you. Like we have enough of those other people. What we don't have is a you. Right. So like it's really empowering people to show up as their authentic selves and know that they are more than enough. This makes this relatable and accessible to the rest of us who don't, um, who aren't in academic circles. I do not have a PhD. I tell people I have a PhD in my lived experience. And oh, yeah, you do. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's a really good PhD. Um, I'm not, it's not like I couldn't do one if I wanted to. I've kicked it around a couple of times and then I look at how long and how much research is involved and I back out of that situation. It's a lot. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I want to do all of that and get my feelings hurt and have to challenge the system and push back when that's what I do in everyday life. Like I do, I do, I want to pay to do that too. So I always, that's what always stops me in my tracks and my husband saying to me, uh, when are you going to find the time to do that? And I'm like, there's always time. Like it, I'll make, if it's important to me, I'll find the time. Right. But I really appreciate you talking about that. Now, when you were talking about uh, microaggressions and black women in the mental health space, how are you how are you helping black women to address mental health? I don't know about um, you, but my experience in the in mental health is I've had a hard time my entire life. Uh, I've shared this on and off and it's only recently I shared this. I tried to kill myself when I was 16 years old and my parents' reaction to that after asking my parents if I could see a therapist. And let's be clear, back in the 70s and 80s, we certainly weren't doing that. I'm a Gen Xer. We didn't talk about feelings. We didn't talk about autism or being neurodivergent. We didn't have drugs to to help us work through our depression. None of that was happening when I was a kid. I just happened to know that there was access to therapy from watching the movie Fame in 1980. That's the only reason I knew about therapy. And I asked my parents if I could go talk to a, a therapist and my parents my mother is a nurse or was a nurse she's retired and she was so mortified that I might embarrass her at work that somebody at work might find out that I was going to therapy and that was going to reflect on her as a mother so I was denied access to mental health Um, and so I ended up trying to kill myself and the reaction after that was not to get therapy was to have my parents shame me and tell me the next time I do it I better get it right because I'm creating so much drama for everyone else and I transcended that, Dr. Angel. I transcended that. That blows my mind. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, and I, I I know when I found you, like when, when we when I had you on my 
show which for like forever ago like we, we, we connected on on our b- battle with eating disorders and kind of what that was like um so i struggled heavy um for i would say probably 15 years but like in high school was was at the height of it and i actually tried to commit suicide when i was 17 um i i swallowed a bottle of pills they had to pump my stomach i i ended up in the psych ward like all of those things um and i think you're right like it wasn't i don't think that it was that my family didn't want to help me they just didn't know how Right. Because, it, and, you know, I think especially in the black community is like whatever happens in this house stays in this house. And that is such a dangerous mindset and a dangerous narrative. And I get it, like not wanting to look a certain way in front of white folks. But like, I also don't want folks to die because of it. So I would say part of how I help black women is being so open and honest, you know, because, you know, folks act like eating, eating disorders are only for white women, which is a damn lie. It is not just white women. It is not just women. Um, right. Like you can be anybody and struggle with it. So being open about that, I'm very, very open about my depression and taking meds. I'm very open about my suicide attempts because there, there's been more than one. Um, and I feel like that helps folks. Um, cause like I want conversations about mental health to be so normal and like yeah, and transparent right because I, I think what we do right now like that this work is radical i don't want it to be radical i want it to be basic af because it happens all the time like i just want it to be so part of our everyday um conversation so i think that's one of the ways i help women but then also sharing my research has been really helpful so like so i, I do my academic papers and stuff like that on microaggressions but i make all that information available on on my page i, I make the articles available online for free i'm not supposed to i'll get in trouble eventually but i don't care um right so because like folks that are dealing with microaggressions and racial battle fatigue don't have the language for it or don't realize it so i always get some version of like oh like that's what i'm feeling so like i'm 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 not crazy i'm i'm not the only one dealing with this right so i feel like that they they, there's this camaraderie there's this comfort um they get to build community and then i feel like they're more willing to go and get help um whether it's like professional help or like sister circles which i feel like save save lives as well right so like having these conversations educating providing information providing community i feel like has been very helpful for black women i i appreciate that and i love that that sister circle i i I think it's so important. I love the fact that you were so open with your attempts at taking your own life like that. We don't need to hide behind that. And it's more common than you you might Mm -hmm. think. I also appreciate you talking about being on the psych ward. I spent the same, I spent time on the psych ward as well. Um, And I think the hardest thing for me in dealing with my mental health in mental health spaces is I never had anybody who looked like me in mental health spaces. And so then I felt like I was educating my therapist on what it's like to move through the world as a black person and that they were downplaying or teaching me how to cope and go along and get along with racism. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you found that to be true in spaces? And just out of curiosity, is your healthcare provider um, or therapist uh, a person of color or a black person? Um, hell yeah, she black. Um, and, I, and but I mean, but that's because I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I'm, I'm, I'm very intentional, right? And I'm not going to feel bad for requesting a black person, um, and a black woman specifically. Um, so when I, when I was in my graduate program, uh, my doc program, they have this thing where you can request a counselor of color. Um, so that's what I did. I went, and then this white woman came out and called my name, and I'm like, she can't be here for me because I know what I asked for. So we, we, we go into the room and she's like, well, like, let's, let's start by talking about how you feel about it being me. And I'm like, this is just how this world works. Like, I'm not even surprised 
at this point. But like, it's so awkward to have to talk to a white person about all the white people stuff that's happening <laughs> at the university. Um, cause, and, and the reason it happened is because there's only one black person on staff. So that one black person can only see uh, so many people. So I feel like that has been an issue. Um, a lot of black people, there's what's known as a micro in, in invalidation where like a black person is telling a therapist or someone what's happening to them and they are their feelings are invalidated. Like, oh, like, how do you know that was racist? Or, or you're just being sensitive. That's the one. That's the one that gets under my skin. Look how activated I got. That's the thing that activates me every time. You're uh-huh. being sensitive. Let me punch you in your right. nuts and exactly. see how sensitive that is. Uh-huh. And, 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 and then that's what it is, right? So a lot of um, therapists aren't educated on what microaggressions are, on what racial battle fatigue are, are, you know, on like what the symptoms and things are. So they're not able to, to help folks and then folks end, end up getting re-traumatized, right? So they're already traumatized by the racism. Now they're being re-traumatized in therapy in the space where they're supposed to be vulnerable and open and supported and encouraged, but they're being smacked again and basically being called a liar, Right, like, like let's let's keep it funky. Like that's what you're calling me, right? Because I'm telling you, I'm experiencing racism, and you're like, no, it's not. You're just making it. Like, I know what the hell racism is. Like, I know what. See now, an, now I'm activated. Exactly. <laughs> so, there's an energy around it. I try to explain to people there's a feeling and an energy that you can feel almost instantaneously. Oh, yeah. You you can be standing in a room with a group of people, and you can find the energy from that one person mm-hmm. who doesn't like you because of the amount of melanin in your skin. Nothing is absolute, and you can feel it. You know it when you feel it. And as a white person, you don't experience those th- those yes. things. You can tell when somebody doesn't like you, but as a black person, you never know if they don't like you because you are black mm-hmm. or they're having a bad day. So maybe they're just crabby, but there's a hostility that comes off of them that you can feel. And to be told that I'm not feeling that or that we live in a country that specializes in um, uplifting that kind of behavior. Uh, to be told that you're imagining it is infuriating. So let's talk about um, racial fatigue, that battle fatigue. This is, you're the first time I've, in reading your work and, and following you, that's the first time I've actually heard that phrase. Can you share with us what that phrase means and how you come to how you come to name it? Because for a long time we didn't have language around it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So racial battle fatigue is a term that was coined by Dr. William A. Smith. He's a professor at the University of Utah um, back in the '90s, um, and it really is referring to both the psychological and physiological consequences of experiencing racism on a consistent, prolonged basis, right? So some of those psychological consequences are decreased self-esteem, increased anxiety, increased depression, suicidal thoughts or actual attempts. Um, And then, but there are also these like physiological consequences, these physical manifestations in our body. So black folks will um, experience elevated heart rate, increased blood pressure, um, stomach ulcers, tension, headaches, um, all of these physical things that are happening to our body as well because of um, the racism that we're experiencing. And it's important for folks to understand that it's not the same thing as PTSD. So when you think think about PTSD, like it's it's a traumatic event, but like it's one that happened that you are trying to to heal from, to cope with. But racial battle fatigue, like there, there is no end. 
right? Like it's consistent over time. So I don't have time to heal from the last microaggression or the last racist incident because there's one happening today. And you know what? There's going to be another one tomorrow, right? So, so what, what, and then what is it like to not just experience them, but to know that you're going to experience them, right? Like it is not just a will I, it is a when I, right? Like when am I going to do it next? Um, or experience it next. Um, and so if you are a mental health professional or a doctor and you don't know what racial battle fatigue is, you're going to dismiss certain um, symptoms, right? Or you're going to be like, oh, black, a, a, a black person increased heart rate, but blood pressure is because y'all eat fat and fried chicken, right? Like not acknowledging like there are so many other things that are happening here. Absolutely. I remember probably in 2018, um, because it's the beginning of the year when we are recording this podcast, and um, there's always that call to action to have people get back into the gym and have people. And I remember them giving a statistic about the amount of heart disease that uh, people of African descent had in relationship to people of European descent. So black folks versus white folks. And ours was elevated. And there was this blaming of us for this elevated um, blood pressure and health issues when not looking at, you know, systemic racism and how that impacts high blood pressure. And even historically, how the people who survived the transatlantic slave trade and enslavement and oppression, the people who survived that, how that manifests itself permanently in your body. There are certain things from being shipped across the ocean in a container where you didn't have access to these things that manifest over time within the body. We are the people who survived it. So we, you know what I mean? Our bodies are stronger in some ways, but our bodies are also um, injured mm -hmm. in other ways from that initial crossing. I know you, nobody wants to believe this, but this is, we can prove this. Generational trauma is real, right? We can prove this. There, there's, there are, you know, we have receipts for this. And it's, and, it, and it's amazing to me that we don't look at that. When they were talking about these statistics, we are clear to blame black folks for that. Yeah. We blame them for that instead of looking at all the areas in which healthcare needs to change. Or if you go into a medical setting, chances are you're not going to be believed by the medical mm -hmm. practitioner. There are, you know, there are um, tests that have been augmented under, you know, under racist ideas so that black people aren't treated the same way or the tests aren't read the same way, which is absolutely ridiculous. I had a friend of mine doing her master's at the University of Windsor who learned that black children were given less pain meds because of, you know, our tolerance for pain, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Mm -hmm. based, based on some ridiculous racist idea from god knows how many years ago how many hundreds of years ago and she was angry and she was surprised that i was not surprised i went to school with these folks okay i lived in residence with the with people who were going to med school and people who were going to nursing school and i saw the textbooks in the 90s that wrote these things you know black people are going to ask for xyz black people are going to complain about paying more than than white people in textbooks in the 90s i had people in my residence point these things out to me and i'm thinking based on what i even then had the wherewithal to know that this is racist information printed in the books that are out there and and the and the publishers of these books have only acknowledged this in the last five years yeah yeah and I mean, and, but th there's so much research, right, that shows this, it's, 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 it's especially around doctors not giving black w w women as much um, pain medication. Um, and it's just, 
it's so frustrating, right? Because like there's research, like there's data, like there are receipts and y'all still acting like this is not happening. Like, 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 like we, we just made up, like, we don't want to be oppressed, right? Like we, like folks act like we're making this up because we want to be victims. Like that's the dumbest thing. Like nobody wants to be oppressed. Like it just doesn't, it burns my biscuits. Like I know it does. It burns my too. I feel all the feelings with you. I'm here with you. I still cannot believe that we sit in this space in the 21st century. And when you call people in, instead of like actually looking at the research and the data, they want to push back with their own feelings. Mm -hmm. Well, I know this is true, but I feel this. Nobody asked you what you felt. Mm -hmm. We're asking you to look at the actual information. And this idea that we can't talk about these things because little white children might be upset. Why can't white children identify with the abolitionists who said, okay, you know what? Racism is a moral failing. There are people out there who are abolitionists who are white folks. What makes you think they won't identify with this? Or or maybe you're afraid to show the pictures because they're going to see their grandma or their great grandma screaming at a poor woman trying to go to school. Maybe that's the bigger story, because a lot of these folks who are out there in the 60s denying people their humanity and oppression are still alive today. They are. And I think it's also that if kids are learning the truth about what racism and whiteness looks like, they then get to acknowledge it in their homes and be like, wait a minute mom and dad have been telling me these lies or mommy and daddy are saying these things that are not so like folks don't want to be called out in their own damn home is also what it is well until all of these things happen we are never going to get past this like there's we talk about truth and reconciliation we talk a lot about that here in canada because we have a horrible history of um killing and maiming and hurting and trying to um, ethnic genocide of indigenous folks. Canadians are equally as racist. We're just more polite about it and we have better PR than the US. So people look over the border and think, oh, look at this utopias. They're not racist. Ask any black Canadian if they've ever suffered racism. It's different, but it's the same. We are also an oppressed people. Ask any indigenous people who are uh, over overrepresented in our criminal justice system. Ask any of those folks. We just had a situation out in Winnipeg where there's indigenous women go missing all the time and nobody cares. Black women go missing all the time and nobody cares. Uh, halfway attractive, interesting white, non-interesting white woman goes missing and the whole world grinds oh, to a halt. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you cannot tell me I'm imagining this. But they'll try to tell you that you're imagining it. <laughs> Yeah. I was not born yesterday. Although I may look it, you I was not born yesterday. Amen, because black don't crack. And I'm here for all the power of the melanin. I'm not mad. <laughs> Listen, girl, we got to get something. Yeah. We got to get something <laughs> that somebody else can't snatch from us. Just one thing that somebody else can't snatch from us. And I'm I'm that, that is one of them. So I'm, you can't I'm here for that superpower. <laughs> For sure, for sure. So as we round up on the hour, I could talk to you all day. I just, I'm loving this vibe. I've got to say in my experience as a black woman, when I meet other black women in this space, there's like an instant sisterhood. Mm -hmm. There's this instant connection. I got to talk to Dr. Um, Raquel and she and I had this really wonderful conversation as well. And it was just like, 
instant, instant, instant. Yep. I love that about us, that we are really interested in the collective. And when you go and you look deep into African culture, whatever country you may be in, you see that we are here for the collective. And when we look at our voting rights and the way that we vote, we are always here for the collective. So I feel this super charge. I work in a gym that is very diverse. So every time I go into the lunchroom, there's at least three other black women in the lunchroom. And so I always go in for the black girl hug and I always take a picture and I always post it because there's something about being in black woman energy that charges my soul. There's this underlying connection that we all have because we have a fuller understanding of how we move through the world. And I think, and I have a question for you, and it's just based on my arrogant opinion. I think other cultures are uh, are jealous of that. Um, I, as you were talking, I'm like, yeah, that's another superpower that I feel like we have. Because there have been plenty of times where like, I'm, I'm out with a white person and I'll see a black person. Like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do like the head nod. I'm like, yo, what's good? And they'll be like, oh, do you know that person? I'm like, no, why would I know that person? They're just like, but you, and I'm like, we're family. But like, no, I, I don't know that person. Or like, I love like when you're out and like, there's like a song that comes out that all black people know. And like one, one person starts singing it and then like the whole restaurant will start singing it. And they're just like, did y'all practice this? Like, like no, like this is just who we are and how we move. Or, or like when you don't know a black person, but like they're across the room and white people are, are white people in and you look at them and you're like, know like y'all had a whole conversation just like with, with look um and like i'm obviously not part of the white community so i don't know if they have things like that i just ain't seen them have things like seen that um so so yeah like i i love that that's so like when i'm like hey hey sis to someone i don't know it's because i mean it yeah. right like we are a family um and i think that that is something so beautiful about the black community i love that so what three intentional well-being props, prompts, or practices could you offer to black women based on your experience and your book? What would you say to black women are intentional well-being things that they can do for themselves? Mm. I think a question that I've learned to ask myself is, am I being as gracious to myself as I am to other people? Mm, word. Because we don't show ourselves grace. Um, we definitely don't show as much grace to ourselves as we do to other people. Um, so that I think is important in terms of a question. Um, in terms of a practice, I'm never going to not say therapy. Um, and I do acknowledge that access isn't is an issue um, for a, a lot of folks, um, which is why I'm grateful for things like like um, the therapy for black girls and like all of these um, social media platforms that are, they, they don't provide therapy. Let me make that clear because therapy from a professional versus what you like information you get is different. Um, but some type of therapy or things that are therapeutic, um, I think are really important because um, I think therapy saves my life, especially if you can have a black person. Um, and then a question, a practice, and then what else? Let me think of the third one, which means I need to step my own game up because I should already have these. But so this is actually helping, helping me. Um, so I, I would say even that, like self self reflection, right? Like, oh, you know, like, like checking in with with yourself, right? Like, because I feel like we we're always going that we don't take time to check in with ourselves, right? So like asking yourself, like how how am I feeling, right? Like what's what's on my heart right now like what has been at the back of my mind like you know like like what's 
keeping me up at night or like actually checking in with yourself because we don't slow down enough to figure those things out. And those things will manifest in, in, in our bodies and actually come out in ways whether we address them or not, right? So it's so like we need to be able to to talk about that. So I would say yes. Ask yourself, are you being gracious with yourself? Therapy um, and consistent check-ins with yourself. And we talk a lot about that in the yoga space. One of two things that came up in this conversation that really sparked the connection to what I call intentional, joyful, mindful movement was that place of discomfort. So often when I'm teaching yoga, I teach yoga at a gym right now. When I teach in a yoga space, it's a cont- an entirely different experience because I'm allowed to bring the spiritual to it. Um, in a gym space, we're not really doing that, right? But there's one thing that yoga teaches us is to sit in our discomfort. And I think there's a lot of people who don't do that. And it's in the discomfort that we learn so much about ourselves, right? So if somebody says something to me and I get defensive, then I know I have some work to do. Like when I'm like, why am I reacting that way? Why is this person making me so angry? Is it this person that's making me angry? Is it what they said? Or is is that true? And unpacking that, like sitting and unpacking that. And I always ask folks to work that through their body through some kind of intentional movement. You don't need to go to the gym because that's not for everybody. And, you know, that's not what I'm saying. Maybe go for a walk, maybe sit and take a breath, maybe do some kind of dance is a really good way for me to work through a lot of feelings and to burn off some of that activation and energy. But finding ways for you to ground down, root down, take a breath, you know, reflect with yourself and think, oh, maybe I do need to make an appointment with the therapist. Ooh, maybe I do need to find a sister circle. Um, maybe I do need to get outside and walk more because, you know, we know there's uh, there's evidence and research that tells us if you spend as little as two hours a week in nature, that that has a profound effect on our mental health. Do I need to drink more water? Do I need to find a way to get to bed earlier? Are there things that I can delegate to other people? Like we really, we take on a lot of the world as black women. We Mm -hmm. really do. And it's a hella thankless job and people certainly don't deserve us, but we plug forward anyway. And we can't be effective if we're not taking care of ourselves. That was my soapbox moment. (laughs) I am gonna double tap that post. Yes, I'm here for it. And I think most above all, I think we have to really dig deep into our joy because mm-hmm. black girl joy is, is inviting and electrifying yes. and pulls everybody in, not just yes. black girls. Yeah. Right. This, this talk brought me joy. So thank you. Right back at you. I, like I said, I've been stalking slash I'm yes. following you all over your posts, looking at what you do, creeping around your website. I really... I really love to see black women thriving. And um, a post that made me cry is when you were getting your gown that you had to pay $1,000 for. You did the work already. I don't know why they can't just let you wear the damn gown. Um, But you had to pay for this. And one of your community members paid for it for you. I bawled because that was meaningful. Mm -hmm. And it was somebody who wasn't part of our like sisterhood that did that for you. Mm -hmm. And that was even more meaningful to me because it said to me that she sees Mm -hmm. you and she appreciates the work you do and that she's going to take some of her generational wealth (laughs) and and spread it around. 
I'm telling you, my I tell you, my I would say say that that their supporters, not followers, but like they hold me down. Something serious. So yeah, I'm grateful. That's important. Like as much as we do most of the heavy lifting, we're all in it together. And how you show up and use your privilege and your generational wealth and acknowledging how you got to where you are and spreading your fingertips out and pulling other people into the center from the margins is how we do this work of co-conspiracy. Um, and I'm also moving aware, away from the word allyship because people just mm-hmm. like to call themselves an ally mm-hmm. without actually doing anything. Absolutely. So, right? If you are not co-conspirating, if you're not getting in the dirt and getting dirty with me, then, you know, what are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> being performative thank you so much for being part of the intentional well-being podcast we are going to link to the show notes please go out and buy dr angel's book i have a copy of it please go out and buy it i'll be sharing all that information in the show notes if you are watching or listening to us on apple Podcasts, please like rate and share become a subscriber if you're interested in supporting this work then do it support this work i want to thank dr angel jones for being a part of this podcast love you sis and i love you of my heart until next time be intentional with your well-being everyone 